So what we're going to hit now primarily is going to come out of Matthew chapter 25, but by the time we're done with this, you're probably going to wish those seats had come with a seat bag and an air uh, seat bag. I'm on point this morning. I'm doing great. Uh, you're going to wish those had come with a seatbelt and an airbag because we are going to go through miles of scripture, but we will land that plane at Matthew 25. So that's probably if you follow along where you would like to be. But before we begin reading our scripture, we're going to go to God and ask him to bless this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that we get to experience you. We thank you that we get to experience your word. And we thank you that we get to do this as a family. We ask right now that as we read your word, what we think of you is transformed, what we think of ourselves is transformed, and what we think of our purpose is transformed. And that we, as a result of hearing your words this morning, go take the light that you are into wherever you have called us to take it. We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we've been going through the book of Proverbs, and this is kind of our last week spending time on the book of Proverbs. If you missed John's sermon last Sunday, you need to check that out. It was a great contrast between wisdom and foolishness. I would encourage you to go check that out because the contrast is evident and the internet is undefeated in this area. The internet shows us the great propensity that we have towards wisdom, but also shows us our infinite ability to find what is foolish and capture it and post it for many generations to continue enjoying. I am so thankful that I grew up in an era where there were not high definition recording devices in everybody's pocket. That is by the grace of God because my foolishness is where it belongs, in the past, where you can't see it. And if I don't tell you about it, you ain't never gonna know because that stuff is buried where it belongs. But today's foolishness lives forever and is relived. And this is the contrast between wisdom and foolishness because we've all done it. We've all ignored the good advice. We've all done what we knew we should not. We've all made bad decisions. And as a result, we've all experienced regret. Regret is no respecter of age or station. From the moment you are able to make and own your own decisions, you start depositing regret into your bank. This is what our favorite pastime is, is to look back in the past and go, man, I really wish this would have turned out differently. Or my favorite one, if I only knew now or if I only knew then, see, I am on fire this morning. I told you, I warned you coming up here. If I only knew then what I know now. Bad decisions are common to humanity, therefore regret is common to humanity. But that really brings us to the first great irony of regret, is that none of us start out our lives trying to accumulate it. Kids will go back to school across our nation over the next month and we'll give our elementary school kids these cards. And on the cards, it'll say really good things like, what do you wanna be when you grow up? What type of person do you wanna be when you grow up? And they'll write really cool things. Like I wanna be an astronaut or I wanna be a zoologist or I wanna be tall. 
or I want to be happy. They'll write, they'll write crazy things on it because they're dreaming and, and they're living their life and they're looking forward and saying, yes, this would be a great life. This is what I want it to be. Not a single kid will write on that piece of paper, I hope I have a lot of regrets when I grow up. Because in kindergarten, you don't even know what that word means. But our seniors do. And as they make plans throughout the year to either study or travel or work or take a gap year, as they're looking at what the rest of their lives, no, none of them will have a category for regret. Like, I hope after I graduate, I make a lot of decisions that I look back on and regret. It won't be a category. You guys, when you got up this morning and you started to come here, none of you thought, man, today is the day where I'm going to absolutely blow it and look back and go, yes, today is the day I made a huge deposit of regret in my life. But with this many people in the room and this many people watching online, statistics say it's going to happen. It's a great irony of regret is it's pervasive and our culture hates it. Our culture hates regret. We despise it almost more than anything. And I know this because we have a litany of cliches built in our culture to dissuade us from regret. We say things like live like you were dying. The implication being don't waste a minute of this precious life that you have. Don't get to the end, look back and go, man, I wish I would have done it this way or I wish I would have done that. We say seize the day. What does seize the day mean? Don't leave any part of this day unsqueezed. Take every bit of life that you can out of it. And we preach these things and we say these things, but we still end up with tons of regret despite not meaning to go there, despite our culture encouraging us not to go there, we end up with lifetimes worth of regret. Because while our cliches sound really good and they're really inspiring and they make great lyrics and songs and they look pretty on t-shirts, they don't exactly fill in the gap because that's what cliches do. They sound really good, but they don't actually provide any meaningful instruction. So we hear that we're supposed to live our best life and we hear that we're supposed to suck the marrow out of the bone that is life. And so we go about doing it and we chase our dream schools and we chase our dream jobs and we trace our dream spouses so that we can have our dream lives, so that we can have our dream vacations, so that we can post about them so everybody knows that we are living a life without regret. And yet we still are. But we weren't meant to. And that's the second great irony of regret, is it was not part of God's original design. The reason we hate regret so much and the reason it bothers us and we can't move past it is we were never actually meant to experience regret. Regret is a purely human invention. We heap this on ourselves, because if you remember, God's original design was everything in harmony, everything perfect, or a life without regret, if you will. We introduced that into here. We introduced regret into the human experience when we decided that what God had for us was not enough. 
But God has very different ideas on how to live this life without regret than we do. While we claim to seize the day and live our best life and live like we were dying, he gives us the antidote to regret in 10 simple words. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this phrasing is repeated hundreds of times in scripture because it is the foundation of everything else. What you think about God may be the most important thing that you think because how you answer the question, who is God, determines how you answer every other meaningful question about our existence. To get who is God wrong is to arrive at many other wrong conclusions. Morality, purpose of life, meaning how you live a life that does not result in regret. The fear of the Lord is the starting point for what we think about everything else. And the fear of the Lord is an awesome concept. We sing songs about God like you have no rival. That is the only being in existence that we can say that about. It is the only being that we can say there is no one to compare him to. We can debate basketball players, presidents, musicians, because there's ways to compare them. We can look at stats, we can look at effectiveness of policy, we can look at albums sold, and we can have debates about who is the greatest of all time. But when it comes to God, there can be no debate. How do you compare the greatness of God when his wisdom goes something like this? He knows the number of hair on your head, but not only yours, every human that has ever existed or will ever exist. How do you compare to somebody that knows those things? How do you compare to somebody that literally created the ocean with his voice, then told it to stop where it is, and now tells it and it obeys? He says, waves stop, and they stop. He set the gravitational constant that allows us to have life in motion. It took us thousands of years to even know the words gravitational constant. He's created things we haven't even seen yet because we have not come to the edge of our universe. The fear of the Lord is to look at God and watch everything else that you were afraid of or everything else that you were aspiring to pale in comparison. The fear of the Lord is something that we will spend the rest of our lives pursuing because his great fit, greatness and intelligence and power is infinite. And to regard him in this way will take a lifetime to experience. The fear of the Lord is foundational. Solomon writes this later on in Proverbs. He says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. It's life. To regard God as the only being worthy of fear and worship is the very foundation of life and will snatch you from the traps that will lead to death. Wisdom is to look at God, see him as he is, not as you wish he would be, not as an invention of your own making, not as something you can even comprehend, but to look at God and have all your categories for living and all your categories for making sense of the world crumble apart because he is a God that language defies. He cannot be described adequately. 
And that is the beginning of wisdom. Now, if you're here today and you haven't decided who God is, you probably heard me say, you are not wise if you do not regard God in this way. But that's not what I said. I am making the point that what you think about God is the most important thing that you think. Because it is a foundational truth from which no other truth escapes. If your starting point is wrong, then you will arrive at wrong conclusions. So I encourage you to wrestle with the questions that plague humanity, the questions that keep us up at night. What is reality? What is my purpose? How did I get here? These questions, I believe, were implanted in the hearts of men to drive them towards the wisdom that is God. So I would encourage you to wrestle with them, but for those of us that have wrestled with them and believe that God is who he says he is, there should be a very natural progression. And Solomon writes about this in another book of wisdom called Ecclesiastes, where he used his great power and his great influence and his great riches to overturn the human experience, to deny himself nothing, to search for meanings in every corner of pleasure and duty and everything that the world had to offer. And he writes this, and in the 12th chapter towards the end, he summarizes all his findings like this. Now all has been heard, meaning I've searched it all. I've used my life to figure out what this life is all about. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. We're really good with that first part most of the time. Those of us that agree that God is who he says he is. We agree that he is someone to be feared. We agree that he is someone to be adored and worshiped and loved. But that last part, and keep his commands. Not big fans of that part. Because it sounds icky. Even though one of his closest followers write, this is the love of God, that you keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. And we know this, because we look at his commands, and it says stuff like, don't lie. And we go, yeah, the world would be a better place. Don't steal. Yeah, the world would be a better place. Be nice to people. Yeah, the world would be a better place. But we all look at those commands, and regardless of how common sense they are, we say, man, it's a burden to obey those commands. I want to drive 50, not 45. I'm American. This country was founded because we don't obey commands. I once had a really good kitchen manager at a restaurant that I worked at. He was my boss meaning I'm supposed to listen to him. And he would tell me very common sense things, like, hey, Jay, will you go clean those trays? And I hated it. And I would tell him no, and then I would go do it. Because I hate commands. One day, he asked me to do something, I don't even remember what it was, and I said yes, and he stopped me. He says, wait a minute, what's happening? And I said, I'm going to do whatever you asked me to do. And he says, yes, but you told me yes. That's the first time in three years you've told me yes. Usually you tell me no, and then you go do it. You told me yes, I have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> because we hate commands. I'm happy doing my job until you tell me what my job is. Because I'm not coming under your authority. Because I'm me. And I come under no one's authority. I drive my own boat, captain of my own ship, 
And the second you tell me what to do, even if it was what I was going to do anyway, I no longer want to do it because no one restricts my freedom. But David, the man after God's own heart, had a very different perspective on God's commands. He writes in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing to the soul. Anybody ever thought about commands like that? Man, I hope my boss tells me what to do. It is so refreshing to my soul. Every time that officer yelled at me, it was so refreshing to my soul. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you on notice real quick. This is gonna read more like a Valentine's Day card than a passage of scripture writing about God's commands. This is the kind of stuff that you should be writing to your spouse. Watch. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. I'm telling you, that's something you write to your wife. Like, you are the light of my life. You are radiant. You give joy to my eyes. You're easy to look at. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, more, much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. I'm telling you, this is like a date. David's on a date with God's commands. Then honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. And he goes on to say, but who can discern their own errors? He sees beauty in the commands of the Lord because in them he sees wisdom. But more than that, he sees the ability to find his own errors. We lack the ability to find our own errors because we always judge ourselves by our intentions. Oh, I can find your errors because I will judge you by your actions. But me, I'm a little bit biased towards me. I understand why I did the wrong thing you're mad at. You don't. So I understand why you're mad. But if you could only see where I'm coming from, you would be a lot less angry at me. Because I am ill-equipped to discern my own faults. And, God, and David praises God's commands saying, look, where I am blind, you can see. And through the, the wisdom, the gift of your word, I can see my own faults and I can fix them and I am prepared for battle and I am wiser than my adversaries and I am now equipped to live a life that you have given me and not a life that leads to regret. This is the power in God's commands. The largest book in the Bible, the largest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. It's all about God's commands and his words. It's a much larger love letter that David writes about the gift that is God's commands. And be sure they are a gift. He's given us two great gifts before he left. Jesus came, he met with his disciples. He said, before I go, and I am coming back. He says, but before I go, you will get two gifts. You will get the spirit. And what that means is far outside the scope of today's message. But we did a huge message on what that means August 29th of last year. You can go in the archives and look that up. But he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit and he said the Spirit would teach us to obey his commands. 
He gave us these two great gifts as we attempt to navigate our lives and lead lives that are not characterized by regret. He gave us the spirit and he gave us his commands. And with this in mind, that he has given these gifts and he's coming back, we can now dive into Matthew chapter 25. And we'll start in verse 14 where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to him. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. So like Jesus, we see that this master is going away, and like Jesus, he gives his servants gifts, and these are expensive gifts. I'm not gonna bore you with the math, but each bag of gold, scholars estimate, is worth about 20 years' wages. So he did not just give them a couple bucks and said, go buy yourself a stick of gum. He said, here's major gifts, and when I go away, I still want you to be about my business. You still have a job, even when I'm not here, You still have a job to do, and I have resourced you. I have given you great gifts. I have trusted you with preciousness that you will be about my business while I'm gone. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. He'd been gone a long time. And upon his return, he wanted to see if his servants had done what he asked. He wanted them to be accountable for the task and for the gifts that he had given. The boss is back, and it's time to give an account. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, You entrusted me with five bags of gold. See that I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come. Share your master's happiness. The master was overjoyed when he got back. He said, yes, you recognized the preciousness that I had given you. You guys did exactly what I asked while I was away. You managed your affairs wisely. And now upon my return, you can get all the happiness that I have prepared for you. You can come join my house. We are good because I have seen that A, you regarded the mission that I gave you properly, And B, you took great care of the great gifts that I had given you. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. He basically says, here what you gave me, I'm giving it back. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. That's pretty harsh. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, question mark. Well then, you should have put money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The master is mad. We kind of think maybe he shouldn't be so mad because he didn't lose anything, but he is livid and rightly so. He gave that servant a job. 
he gave that servant a gift. And that servant buried it. And while the master was gone a long time, that's what it says, was gone a long time, we're left to question, well, what were you doing? The master gave you a job. You abandoned your job. Not only did you abandon your job, you dug a hole and put the gift in the ground. He says, at the very least, you should have made a deposit with that gift. You completely abdicated both your responsibility and your gift, which means you have no idea who I am and you have no idea what you've been given. You tried to blame it on me is essentially what he says. Master, I abandoned the mission that you gave me because I knew who you were. He says, if you knew who I was, you would not have abandoned the mission that I gave you. If you knew who I was, at the very least, you would have deposited that where other people could make use of it, not buried it in the hole in the ground and gone off about whatever it is you were doing for all the years that I was gone. He says, you have no idea who I am and you have no idea what I gave you. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken of him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, we think it's harsh. We think it's harsh because we usually stop our reading there. We want to commiserate with a servant that wasn't about his master's business. We want to commiserate with a servant that tried to blame his abandonment on the master that gave him the job. But understanding this passage helps us understand what comes next, which is one of the most often preached passages in Scripture. This one makes the highlight real. But I believe it's a continuation of what we just read. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, when the master comes back from his journey, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when all of the angels with him, he will sit on a glorious throne. When he comes back to put to right what we set wrong, when he comes back for his creation to see what his servants did with the knowledge of who he is, with the fear of the Lord, with the gifts that they have been given, when he comes back, it will go like this. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. When he comes back to take inventory of creation, he's going to separate humanity into two categories, not the one million categories that you and I do. He's going to separate the expanse of humanity from the beginning of time to the end into two categories, one's on his right and one's on his left. And here is what he's going to say to the ones on his right. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Again, echoes of the parable before. Enter into your master's happiness. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. He says, you knew my character and you knew the business that I was about. You took the gifts that I gave you and you used them wisely and you have nothing to regret. Because you gave clothes to people that had no way of getting it. 
You gave food to people who could not feed yourselves. And the one that resonates with me, you took care of the sick that had no way to take care of themselves and you visited people in prison who were shunned by society. He says, you took what was given, you had your mind on the mission and you went about the business. And the people on his right are confused, justifiably so. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, show you hospitality or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Lord, we didn't see you in any of these things. We were just about our master's business. We weren't doing these things as a result of seeing you. We were doing these things as a result of seeing the people that you love hurting. And we felt compelled by the transformation that is the fear of the Lord to move on these people's behalf in the same way that when you saw us, you moved on our behalf. Lord, we are confused. We never saw you. And the king will reply, King Jesus will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What you did for the family, you did for me. And you know this, when someone helps out your kid, you are never more grateful. When someone helps out your family, giving something where you couldn't or being there when you couldn't, you are never more grateful because this is a team game. He says, you understood the assignment. You knew what was important and you spent the gifts that I have given you on that. You enter your master's happiness. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. You saw the need around you. You saw the gifts that I had available, gifts that were available for everyone. And I don't know what business you were about, but you weren't about the business that I had given you. You took those gifts and you spent them unwisely or you buried them in the ground and now you have a lot to regret. And they say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Lord, when, this, this is like what my teenager says to me when I, I've got him caught. He's like, when, what can you prove? Prove it, is there a video? If we had seen you, God, we would have done it. If we'd have seen you, we would have been about your business. I'm blaming it on you. Because we didn't see you. It's your fault we didn't understand the assignment. It's your fault we weren't about our father's business. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. We love to make this junk more complicated than it is. We love to debate well, is this right? Well, is this wrong? Well, what does this life look like? Well, what does that life look like? What's the life better live? It is spelled out. Fear the Lord, obey his commands. 
and his commands are not burdensome. It's that simple. But we make it convoluted so that we can pretend to be about our father's business while being about our own business. There's a verse I want you to put on your heart this week in Hosea chapter eight, verse 14. It says, my people have forgotten me and begun building palaces. My people have forgotten the work that I have given them to do and have begun being about their own lives, building things that I will destroy when I come back. Our God did not leave us unclear. What are the greatest commandments? Your kids will probably learn them 20 times this year. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on these things. Full stop, end debate. This is the business. The spirit and the commands are the gifts. If you bury the gifts in the sand, you don't know the Father. Because he has clearly told us that those of us that do know him, that agree that Jesus is, that he says he is, that he came down, entered human history some 2,000 years ago, ultimately the same God that spoke the oceans into existence walked the last three years of his life homeless and allowed himself to be stuck on a cross that you and I could know him and be a part of his eternal kingdom. And he says our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but taking on very nature, the nature of a servant, served us by being crucified on a cross. And those of us that understand his character and fear the Father and respect the gifts, that will be what our lives look like. And you know the funny thing about that? Is there's no regret in that life. There's no regret when you see your father and he says, thank you for clothing the naked. Thank you for taking care of the sick and the dying. Thank you for feeding the hungry. Thank you for not treating your office building as a way to make money and take great vacations. Thank you for not treating your algebra classroom as the next stepping stone in your plan for world domination. Thank you for having your eyes open to the needs of the brothers and sisters that I have placed in your path that they might be called the children of God. There is no regret because then we enter into our master's happiness. Stop making this more complicated than it is. We know what the job is. We've been given the gifts. Go and be the church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that we get your word, we thank you get, we get your spirit, and we thank you that we get your commands. Let us write your commands on our heart that we can be about the purpose that you've given us. Let us see you in your glory and your entirety so that the categories that we have made to fit our own perspective on reality fade away and we can live the meaningful, spirit-guided, life that you have for us devoid of regret that though we may be tired and though we may be frustrated and though we may be weary we are never regretful because we know the assignment that we've been given and we know the gifts that you've provided and we are looking forward to the day where we enter into our master's happiness we ask these things in jesus name and by the power of the spirit amen